Let's let our men come, and all of us, if you will, stand, and our men, all of you that will, just come and gather around the altar, and we do this just to take the service of the Lord in prayer and just to seek the face of the Lord. And I'm glad you're here tonight. Are you glad to be here? Say amen. Good night to be in the house of the Lord. So let's ask the Lord now to meet with us and to touch our hearts. Father, in Jesus' name, we do want to bless your name for all you've done for us. If it hadn't been for your love and your grace, we could be in hell tonight or at least on our way to hell. But you reached down into the gutter of sin and you saved us one day and we thank you for that. And we ask you tonight, Lord, that you take your word and take what you do in our hearts here. May the presence of God be real. May the service be freshly anointed of the Lord. And may we be open to all that you have for us tonight. Speak to us and work in our hearts. And may we leave loving you more and more committed to serving you and doing what you've called us to do. Thank you, Lord, for this day already and for what you've done. Continue to bless now. Magnify your name through everything that is done. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. If you need a book, page 34. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy Let's let our WANA leaders come and present their awards tonight. We have two Sparks Awards tonight. We're going to start with Rachel Reed. Rachel's earned a green jewel. She learned Genesis 1-1, and she had to do a section on about th doing things about... I'll get it right in a minute. She had to learn about things that God made. <clears throat> and this is Allison Holcomb. She's earned a red jewel. She learned nine Bible verses. For the guards, fifth and sixth grade girls, this is Reagan Smith, and she's receiving Bible drill number four. She completed 15 Bible verses, her book to the Old and New Testament, and completed four Bible search. Good job. I said, rushers, come forward to receive her offering, and you give tonight. Be faithful in your giving. Appreciate the way you are faithful to giving. If that's for me, just tell them to call back in a little while. Amen. Tell them I'm busy right now. But anyway, let's pray and you give and the Lord will bless you. Father, thank you now for the joy of being able to give to you. What a joy it is to be able to give. And we thank you for everything that you give. And our giving is reflective of our gratitude. So bless now the service. Continue to open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.
merciful Father, wonderful friend, the first and the last and beginning and end, Redeemer and Savior, our soon coming the Son, the sweet Holy Spirit, they're all three in one, a refuge and fortress, the giver of life, a comfort in sorrow, he's all that I star, the king of all angels, he's greater by far, physician and healer, I am that I am, so righteous and holy, he's all that I
Let's all stand tonight as the choir comes down. Aren't it good to know that we have a holy God tonight? But he's not so holy. He doesn't know where we are and what we're doing. He doesn't care about us. He really does. 572, he keeps me singing. While you're looking, get out, shake hands, move all around. We've got visitors tonight. Make them feel welcome. He keeps me singing. 572. Continue shaking hands as you're finishing up. Get your songbook, turn on page number 572. 572, he keeps me singing. 572.
has a blessing. You enjoy that? Say amen. I want you to open your Bible. Be finding three places tonight. First Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and the book of Romans chapter 12. I want you to find all three of these because we're going to uh, put them all together tonight. But 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12. While you're finding those three places there, let me say it's good to have Jim Elkins, Miss Elkins here tonight. Always good to have them in the service. And then uh, it's good to have Louise with us tonight. Now listen, if I've got a friend in the world, it's Louise. It's Eva DeBoard's sister. And uh, if you, if I don't have, if you, if it's anybody, if I, anybody that'll fight for me, it's Louise. Amen? Amen? And, of course, she's deaf, so anything you say about me, she's not going to hear it or believe it anyway. Amen? <laughs> but I love Louise, and good to have her in the service tonight. We've been in 1 Corinthians now for over, going on close to a year. In fact, tonight is the 38th message that I have brought as we have made our way through 1 Corinthians. It's been my custom for a long time, Sunday nights, to preach through a book in the Bible, a lot of times even on Wednesday nights, and I'll go through one New Testament book, and then I'll do an Old Testament book, and when I conclude that, back to the New Testament and kind of rotate them. But 1 Corinthians has been a little longer than usual because it is a more lengthy book. And uh, we have been in, as I said, for 38 weeks. Been in a little longer than that, but this is the 38th Sunday night that I have looked in the book. Read a section in 1 Corinthians that is a very, very controversial section, and I understand that. It is very controversial, very relevant to our day because of the phenomenal growth of the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement is no longer limited to those of the Church of God faith or those of the Pentecostal faith or whatever. Uh, the charismatic movement now involves basically every faith you can think of. Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, any faith that you can think of. As most of you know, last weekend I was in England and uh, me and Brother Tom, we go there every year, we go to buy books. It's not a vacation, we go to buy books and I've been trying for a number of years to build a library, a large library, and I won't the kind of library, no matter what the subject is, I've got something on, have something that I can turn to and feel like I've built that kind of library now trying to enlarge it to even have more access and more resources to turn to. So we go every year because of the source of books that we're able to find and the price that we're able to get the books and things like that. And I think I didn't bring back as many this time as I normally do. I only had 160 this time when I brought back. But anyway... But uh, we, uh, when we're there, we always uh, visit a church or whatever there. And I was sharing Brother Rick a little bit earlier there. Of course, we got into London on a Saturday morning, and we always rent a car and just take off and, and go. And basically, two places that we go, uh, one is a bookstore in London. Then we go up into Nottingham, Nottinghamshire. And uh, we visit a little place up there in a little community called, a little village called Ranskill. But uh, we got it on Saturday. We drove down to Bournemouth. I had never been to Bournemouth. And it's right on the coast in the southern, very southern tip of England. We visited a couple of places there. We want to go by and find uh, the Lansdowne Baptist Church where Francis Dixon pastored for a number of years. And, of course, Brother Dixon only went home to be with the Lord just a few years ago. But I always loved the ministry of Francis Dixon. Some of the first little notes I were given when I started preaching was little notes uh, from Lansdowne Baptist Church in Bournemouth, England by Francis Dixon. And also we visited 
Richmond Hill Congregational Church where J.D. Jones had pastored for so many years. And uh, then on Sunday, uh, we always stay outside of London, and London is one of those cities that just kind of closes in on you. So we always stay outside of London in a little motel and then take a train, go in on Sunday and just park instead of driving in there. I do well driving on the wrong side of the road as long as you don't get me down in the middle of those city centers and whatever. But uh, we took a train and went to City Temple. City Temple, back in the uh, latter part of the 1800s, uh, was one of the premier churches in the world. Dr. Joseph Parker pastored there, and uh, Parker's right here in the middle of London in the Holborn Viaduct area. And over here you had Charles Spurgeon, Metropolitan Tabernacle, and you had F.B. Meyer over here. It was just during that era there, it was just amazing the preaching that went on in the city of London, preaching that literally affects the world today. And uh, City Temple was a large congregation, and uh, I read a thing about a story after it was there Sunday morning. I, I remember reading about a story that Parker, he, he made the statement one time that whenever he died, if City Temple, whoever preached and passed in City Temple, if they did not preach the Word of God, he prayed that God would write Ichabod on the place. And shortly after, Parker, he even had a hand part in choosing the man that took his place, a good fundamental man, good Bible-preaching man, but eventually got off into uh, other things, into a social gospel. And I remember reading the story how one of the members climbed upon this huge structure still standing and painted Ichabod across the front of it. But we were there on Sunday morning in this huge auditorium with that history that it had. Joseph Parker was one of the kind of men that it was not unusual for the queen to visit City Temple to listen to him preach. But we went in there on Sunday morning, and I bet there wasn't 20 people there. There wasn't 20 people in that place. And, uh, and what was, you know, it, just, it was a tragedy, tragedy, knowing their history and things. But City Temple had uh, you, not only that they didn't have Parker there and, and that kind of history, but the charismatic movement was very, very evident in City Temple. Sunday night, we drove up to Cambridge. I wanted to go to my alma mater, visit there. I hadn't been there in a long time, so we went up to Cambridge. And so, no, I had, God really endeared my heart, a man, a few weeks of, in the past couple of months, by the name of Charles Simeon. I mentioned his name. He pastored the Holy Trinity Church there in uh, Cambridge. And, and Brother Tom, and we didn't realize it till we, uh, right before we left, and I mentioned, I said, I'd like to run by Cambridge. I'd like to go by and see where Simeon pastored. And I said, I've been reading... Uh, Mills Brook on uh, Simeon and, and Brother Tom said, uh, well, I've been reading that too. So we both had been reading the book at the same time, didn't realize it. So we both had interest in going there. And so we visited there on Sunday night. What a blessing it was to be able to go there and where Simeon had passed her. And then the Church of England, which is a lot like our Episcopalian churches here, they don't have pastors, whatever they call them, vicars. And uh, vicar is come, we get our word vicarious from it. It talks about a substitute uh, someone who stands between God and man, which I think is a good name for a pastor, a vicar. And, uh, but we were amazed. This thing, Simeon pastored there in the 1700s. This place was full on Sunday night in life, and the vicar was so kind to us and so warm to us and whatever. And, and I was sharing with Rick a little while ago, and we was talking about Simeon and whatever, and he said, would you like to see Simeon's preaching Bible? I said, I'd love to see his preaching Bible. So he took me back to a little room, and he got the Bible out. Simeon there was the latter part of the 1700s. He took it out of the case, and handed it to me. That's a dangerous thing. I, you know, if I thought, if I can get out of here, how can I get out of here with this thing? Be a blessing. And, uh, but I thumbed through it and found notes and things, how Simeon used to do his notes and whatever. But it was a real blessing. 
But I've noticed in our last few visits there a couple of features that is going on in the UK that uh, I, I couldn't help but notice. When we were there before, when we visited the great Westminster Chapel, it had been great. And uh, same thing, they, in the charismatic movement has moved into it and uh, the Toronto blessing and whatever. But I've noticed a couple of features there. Many of those churches that gave birth to history, the religious history that, that so impacts us even today, uh, basically all of them, the charismatic movement has moved into. And second of all, I was telling and said to my wife today when we were talking, and I said, and they all are getting American pastors. And I said, I believe there's a reason why all that is going on. One is the churches have been so dead and been so formal and so lifeless, and they've been dying over the past 60, 70 years to the point that only 2% of the U.K. population goes to church on Sunday, and the majority of the people in the U.K. are atheists. We witnessed a little girl in McDonald's. I guess she's maybe 21, 22, 23 years old, and uh, we witnessed to her and, and talked to her, and she says, I don't know anything about this God stuff. My little girl's come home from school telling me about God, want to know about God. She said, I don't believe in God, don't want anything to do with God, whatever like that. And that's just the attitude of the people. And I think it has a whole lot to do with the fact that the churches were so formal and so rigid and so dead and so lifeless that they died. And what is going on is they're grasping at straws. And they're reaching over here now and they're learning from the American churches and grabbing from the American churches and uh, they're bringing in, I think the reason to get the American pastors in is because they're not locked into this formalism and whatever there. And they're just grasping at straws trying to survive. And But I see it. It's very, as we come through, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, we come to this passage and I say all that to say this, that as we come through, as we work our way through this passage, as I said a couple of weeks ago, it is not my intention to be offensive to anyone. Because I know that many of you, that uh, some, many of you grew up in uh, backgrounds to where tongues and healings and things like this were a very part of your faith. I understand that. And even some of you tonight have family members that are in these kind of churches. I want you to understand that as I work my way through the Scriptures, you know and you don't have to question where, what I believe and where, where I look at things and how I look at things. And we as a church and so we're like that. I want you to understand, it's not my intention to be offensive, to offend you, to maybe make you think that I am putting a family member down or whatever like that. Uh, listen, I want you to know something. Uh, I have friends in the charismatic and different things, and I will love them regardless of how they believe. I will never, by the help and the grace of God, offend anybody because of my disposition. But I want you to understand something else. That when I walk up here behind this sacred desk, I have a holy obligation to my God. And I have a holy obligation to what thus saith the Lord. And, uh, and I said it a long time ago. By the help and the grace of God, I was going to find out what God said. And then my whole ministry is not going to be built around my opinions. It's going to be built around the Scriptures. And I would try to let the Bible be the guide of my life and would be the rule by which I would live by and preach by. And so I want you to understand that as I come tonight, that my intention is not to offend. My intention is to be faithful to my God. And I want you to understand, as I said, I would, it would bother me greatly to offend somebody because of my disposition. But if I offend somebody because of my position, I'm going to go home, go to bed, sleep like a baby. There's two different things there because I know that one of them has to do with the way I act. The other has to do with whom I represent. And there are two big differences there. 
Well, I say all that, say this. I hope you're not in a hurry to get home because we got a lot of territory to cover tonight. Amen? Let's stand as we honor the reading of His Word. 1 Corinthians 12. I will just go back and look at a few verses of Scripture that we read a few weeks ago. And I want to read this uh, particular passage because what I want us to do tonight, in conclusion of chapter 12, he gives us a list of gifts. Now, we looked at a list that he gave in the early part of the chapter. I just briefly mentioned those as we passed through them. What I want to do tonight is go back and take that list, the list that is given in the closing of the chapter, and then go to two other places in the Bible where lists are given. And tonight, basically, what we're going to do is not just conclude the chapter, but kind of sum everything up in the chapter concerning these lists. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 8, the Bible said, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another divers kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Verse 28 of the same chapter, we find he gives us another list. Some of them are repeated, but he adds a few. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, And God hath set some in the church... First, apostles, secondarily, prophets, thirdly, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Now mark your place and turn back or turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. There are three lists of gifts that we find in the Bible. This is what we're looking at tonight. Ephesians chapter 4 and notice verse 11. Turn right in your Bible and go to Ephesians 4 verse 11. The scripture said in Ephesians 4 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, verse 11, we just look at the one verse, but again, in verse, you just glance back up in verse 7 and 8, he talks about gifts. He gave gifts unto men. Verse 11 is a list of those gifts that he gave unto men. Now turn back to Romans 12. The book of Romans 12, verse 6 through 8. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. The Scripture said, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy, with cheerfulness. Now again in verse 5, 4 and 5, it talks about the body. Verse 6, he mentions gifts and then he lists those gifts. Thank you. you. may be seated. And we're going to work our way through these three lists tonight and learn a few things about the matter of gifts. The way I want to approach it tonight is I want to give you three keys to understanding spiritual gifts. Three keys 
to understanding spiritual gifts. Now, I want you, this will help you in every area of your Bible, if you'll follow these tonight. But three keys for understanding spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight in Jesus' name, what a blessed privilege it is to be able to read the Bible. What a blessed privilege it is to be able to stand in a public place and to open the Word of God and to read your blessed Word. What a privilege. And Father, I think about what you told Timothy, to give attendance till I come, give attendance to reading. Not so much, Lord, that we read, though we should, but, Lord, that we're to give attendance to the reading, that we're to make a very special matter, the very reading of your Word, not just the preaching that we might exhort and the doctrine of your Word, but even the reading is to be a very significant matter of our worship. And so, Lord, we thank you for the reading of the Word of God. But we thank you, Lord, for the Word of God that we can study to know your mind and to know your heart and to know your plans and to know your purposes. Father, we ask you now that you might help us tonight as we study your Word, that we might hear from you and that our hearts and minds would be open and receptive to your Word, that you might ground us and, Lord, build us in the faith to understand our place in your world. Continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We find in the closing chapter or verses of chapter 12 that Paul gives us, as I said, a list of spiritual gifts. He had formerly done so in verses 8 through 10, and we looked at those and read them again just a moment ago. And a couple of Sunday nights ago, we briefly made a few comments about these gifts. But what I want us to do tonight in our present study as we conclude chapter 12 is to look at the list of gifts that are given to us in the Bible. Not only here in 1 Corinthians 12, but as we read a moment ago from Ephesians 4 and also Romans chapter 12. Interestingly, the only three places that were given a list of gifts in the Bible. But I want us to look tonight at these lists and I want us to look at them more closely and try to glean some things from them. Now it's obvious, as I said just a moment ago, it's very obvious there is a lot of disagreement about spiritual gifts. There are many believers, many believers that believe that all the gifts are for today. While there are others that do not believe that all the gifts are for today, and they believe that certain gifts had a specific role at a specific time, thus they are no longer operative. Now here's the question. How do we know who is right? How do we know who is wrong? How do we know whether I am right or someone else is right and I am wrong? How do we really know who is right and who is wrong? I believe tonight that we can know. In fact, we should know. He began the chapter. If you remember, when we began chapter 12, he made the statement, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. He is saying at the very beginning of the chapter, I don't want you to be in darkness. I don't want you to lack knowledge about this matter. And he begins the chapter dealing with this subject, and in particular in chapter 14, dealing with the matter of tongues. And he says to them, I want you to understand. I want you to have a clear understanding about spiritual gifts. Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And so I believe if he tells us that we can understand, I believe tonight that we can understand. But here's the key. How, here's the issue. How do we know what is right and what is wrong? 
I believe there are three keys to understanding spiritual gifts. And I want you to write these three th things down tonight. Three keys that I want us to consider that will help us as we look at these lists of spiritual gifts that are given the Word of God to help us to know what is right and what is wrong. Write these down. Key number one. I believe in order to properly understand spiritual gifts, the first key is the historical description of spiritual gifts. The historical description of spiritual gifts. I do not believe that the historical place of spiritual gifts is the first and the final basis for coming to a proper conclusion about the matter. And I'll say more and explain that statement in just a moment. But I do believe a look at history or look at the history of spiritual gifts and operation can provide insight that is very suggestive and insight that is very helpful. Now, when I talk about the historical record or talking about the historical description of spiritual gifts, I want you to understand tonight that I am talking about the historical record that you have in the Word of God. If we are to consider the historical significance of spiritual gifts, then the Bible should be our primary history book. It should be the primary book that we turn to. If we want to study anything, the work of God in history, the Bible should be our primary history book. And as you know, as you look in your Bible, there are certain books in the Bible. Well, all the books in the Bible have been put there for a reason. And some of the books of Bible, some of the books of the Bible are historical in nature, such as the four Gospels. They are historical in nature. They give us the history of the life of our Lord, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts gives us the history of the church. The book of Acts is a book of historical nature. And so you find there are certain books in the Bible that are historical in nature. They are given to us that we might know the history of certain ones and certain things. And so when you look at the historical matter, look at gifts in a historical perspective, then the Bible itself and the historical record of God should be the primary history book that you turn to. Now I want to say two things about God's historical record. First of all, I want to say that it is a divine record. When you look at the history of spiritual gifts as given in the Bible, what you have is God's record of history. You have in the book of Acts, let's say, that is a book of history, the history of the early church. You have God's historical record. And because it is God's historical record, then you have a record that is divinely prepared. You have a record that is divinely presented. You have a record that is divinely protected and you have a record that is divinely preserved. In fact, every word in the Bible has been divinely prepared and divinely presented and divinely protected and divinely preserved. But because it is a divine record, then you can take the historical record of the Bible and believe everything about it. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. First, the Bible is Scripture. It is holy writ. When it talks, you find the word Scripture, it means a holy writing or holy writ. The Bible is not an ordinary book. It is the Word of God. Second of all, it is inspired. It is divinely breathed. The ideal is that when you talk about inspiration, it's divinely breathed or God-breathed. It is that God or the Word of God came from God Himself. It is not the doings of man. It is not man gathering together all these facts and God stamping His approval on us. I like that. I believe I'll put that in the Bible. No, they originated from God in the first place. 
And the men that delivered them merely delivered the Word of God. So it is a book that come from God. It is God-breathed. Therefore, it is a book that is perfect. It is a book without error. It is a book without flaw. It is a book without contradiction. Now, understanding that about the Bible makes what the Bible says very important. And it makes what the Bible says authoritative. And it makes what the Bible says trustworthy because it is a divine record. Now, saying all that, let's trace the history of certain spiritual gifts through the divine pages of the Bible. And I want to just focus on one particular gift, and that is the gift of speaking in tongues. And I focus on that particular gift, not that I'm after that one gift, but that seems to be the gift that was the issue in the church of Corinth, as we'll see in chapter 14. And seems to be the gift and issue even in our day. But let's just follow the Bible and go through God's historical record and just put our focus upon that one gift for just a moment. Take your Bible and turn to Mark 16. And the book of Mark 16, you'll find in verse 17 the first time in the New Testament that any reference is made to speaking in tongues. And the book of Mark 16, notice verse 17. We'll come back to this a little later. But look at Mark 16. But what, what we're doing right now is just kind of going through God's historical record and just tracing the history of this one particular gift. Mark 16, verse 17, the Bible said, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. Now again, this is the first time that anything is said in the New Testament about the matter of speaking in tongues. It's the first time that anywhere, anybody, anything indicates that such a gift would exist. It did not exist at that time. For Jesus said they shall speak in new tongues indicating that the gift was not operative at that time, but he was indicating that there would be a gift, the gift of tongues that would be in operation in the future. That is the first time any record of it in God's historical record. It is only come to the book of Acts that you actually see the gift in operation. Jesus said there would be those that would speak in tongues. When you come to the book of Acts, which is a book of history, you see the gift in operation. Turn to Acts. And I find as I look in the book of Acts, now follow me closely and make notes and follow me and just chew on them and uh, let the Lord work them in your heart. You come to the book of Acts and I find something very interesting about God's historical record and this particular gift. There's only three times in the Bible that you find it ever been practiced. You look in the book of Acts only three times. Is there any record in God's book of anybody speaking in tongues. You find it mentioned a lot. You find it discussed a lot, such as in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. It is talked about. It is mentioned there. But it's only three times do you actually find a record of anybody speaking in tongues. Look at it in Acts chapter 2. The first time you find anybody speaking in tongues is in Acts 2. Notice verse 3. The Bible said in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now you know the background. The scene is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was one of the feasts, 50, Pentecost meaning 50. And it was 50 days after the Passover. And so they were celebrating this Jewish feast of Pentecost. 
And you know the story how on that particular day, suddenly the Spirit of God descended and filled the disciples and they began to speak in tongues. That is the first time in the Bible you find somebody speaking in tongues. Look in Acts chapter 10. You find the second occasion in God's record of someone speaking in tongues. In the book of Acts chapter 10 verse 46. In Acts 10 verse 46, it's good for you to use your Bible. It'll get a little dust in here, man, but the more you use it, the dust will kind of settle down after a while. But in the book of Acts chapter 10, notice verse 46. If you have asthma, I feel sorry for you because we're going to have a lot of dust going tonight. But Acts chapter 10, verse 46, we find the second time in the Bible in God's historical record of somebody speaking in tongues. Verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now the background of that statement there and that scene and that occasion was Cornelius a Gentile. His prayer had been heard by God. And so God sent Simon Peter to Cornelius. And while Peter is preaching to him, the Spirit of God fell upon them. And those that heard him preach, those, they, they began to speak in other tongues. That's the second time in the Bible you find somebody speaking in tongues. The third and the final record in God's historical record, anybody speaking in tongues, is in Acts 19. The first one's Acts 2. The second one is in Acts 10. The third one is in Acts chapter 19. Look at it. Acts, 9, Acts 19, verse 6. Acts 19, verse 6. The Bible said, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues, and they prophesied. Now the scene in Acts chapter 19 finds Paul entering into the city of Ephesus. And he begins to talk to some of the disciples of John the Baptist. And you find how Paul laid his hands on them, and when Paul laid his hands upon them, they began to speak in tongues. Now that is the entire record. And that is the, those three passages, Acts 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, that is the only time in the Bible, the only time in the New Testament, that you find somebody actually speaking in tongues. Again, it is mentioned in other places. It is referred to in other places. But this is the only time in God's historical record that you have someone speaking in tongues. It is a divine record. Now I say all that to say this, that when it comes to the Bible, it's not only a divine record, and we see in God's divine record occasions when someone spoke in tongues, but I want to say this, second of all, it is a definitive record. Because it is a divine record, we've looked at the history of God, the Bible, God's record of history, Three times do we find anywhere in God's history book that anybody spoke in tongues is divine record. And because it is a divine record, now follow me closely. Therefore, its historical record becomes a measuring stick for all history outside the pages of the Word of God. All of history has to be judged in light of God's record of history. And all history has to be evaluated in light of what the Bible says. Now listen, are you listening to me? You take God's divine record. You have the history that God gives us, a very limited part of history. The book of Acts covers the very beginning of the early church. But all of history that follows has to be measured by that small portion of history. All of God's dealings with men have to be judged and evaluated in the light of what the Bible said. Now I think about in our day and time, there are certain spiritual gifts that are interpreted in light of events that are more, more in history. For example, if this thing begins to buzz on, 
just uh, give me this mic here. But I think about uh, many of the gifts in our day, they are often, follow me closely, often interpreted in light of certain events that are more modern in history. For example, what occurred in 1906 at Azuzu Street in Los Angeles, California, has become the defining moment for the modern-day charismatic movement. And what happened in 1906 at 312 Azusa Street has become synonymous with the modern-day charismatic movement. Now, you go back in history, and you go back after the early church, and you find very few examples of anybody speaking in tongues. You find it in the early church, in the very early part of the church, but then through history, there are a few isolated examples, Tertullian and different ones like that, but very, very few, and they were frowned upon and considered heretics by the church up through history. But up through the centuries of time, there was a little bit here and maybe one here and a little bit there. But it was not until the turn of the century that it really began to become the phenomenon that it is in 1990 or in the year 2000. There was a few cases of it at Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. But it was what happened at 312 Azusa Street in 1906 that paved the way for the popularity and the tongues phenomenon of this age. There was a man by the name of W.J. Seymour, Bishop Seymour. And a small group of believers moved into a little rundown building. It had been a church at one time, evacuated, it had been a stable. And so Seymour and his small group moved into 312 Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. And they began to worship there. It wasn't long that they experienced what they called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And soon the group was speaking in tongues. And it was not long before the building was filled with capacity. And it was not long that people were coming from literally around the country and eventually literally around the world to see what was going on. For over three years, the Azusa Street Apostolic Faith Mission conducted three services a day, seven days a week, where thousands, as they said, received the gift of tongues. But what happened there in 1906 rapidly spread around the world, giving us or laying the foundation for the phenomenon that we call the modern-day charismatic movement. And the modern-day charismatic movement is often defined by what happened at Azusa Street. But I want you to listen to me. You cannot... Let Azusa Street and the year 1906 serve as a definitive basis for what you believe. From a historical standpoint, the divine record must be the definitive record. Are you listening to me? The Bible must be the definitive record about things. You cannot take modern history and build your theology on it. You must take modern history and sift it through biblical history to come to conclusions about modern history. To illustrate what I'm saying, let's once again use the gift of speaking in tongues as our focus. Again, because it is seen to be the issue at Church of Corinth as well in our, as our day. You take the gift of tongues. And when you compare the divine historical record with the more modern historical record, you can't help but find some differences and some contradictions. First, let me just point out a few things. When you look at the divine record, you don't find a lot of attention given to tongues. There's only three places in the Bible where you have anybody speaking in tongues. You don't find that a lot of attention was given to it. You don't find in history that a lot of emphasis was placed upon it. 
You don't find that there's a lot. You don't, you don't find in God's historical record that it was something that was happening everywhere involving everyone and every place. It was not something that was spreading from believer to believer and from church to church and town to town. No, you don't find that in God's historical record. You find there was a very, very limited expression of the gift. And the book of Acts, as you follow the history of it, seems to suggest there was a very selective occurrence of the gift rather than a widespread phenomenon among all believers and among all churches. In fact, the book of Corinthians is one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. And I think it is somewhat interesting, and, and I think it's something that must be given thought to when you realize that the book of 1 Corinthians being one of the first New Testament books written, that in the books written after it, say nothing about it. That the books that follow the Corinthians and the situation of Corinth, that the epistles of Paul, he doesn't even mention the matter. And I think there's also a couple of fine points that I see in the divine record that has to get my attention, and I think are very suggestive for one thing. You'll find in God's historical record, now listen to me, you'll find in God's historical record that any time anybody spoke in tongues, there was always an apostle present. There was always one of the original 12 present. Now I'll find something else in God's historical record. There were always Jews present. There might have been speaking in tongues among Gentiles, but every occasion in God's historical record, there is always an apostle present and there is always Jews present. Now there's a reason why there's a limited example of it in the Bible. And there's a reason why an apostle and Jews were present. And we'll see that a little bit later on. But I want to point these out because the divine record and the more modern record are somewhat different. But here's the point I want you to make. I want you to understand. And is that the divine record must serve as a definitive record. You must sift all church history through God's historical record. And when you do, you can't help but form certain foundations and develop certain conclusions about spiritual gifts. That's key number one. Key number one is the historical description of it. You've got to look at it from God's historical record. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Are you following me? Key number two. How do you understand spiritual gifts? Key number one is you can look at the historical description of it. You see it in God's history. And you interpret history through God's history. Second of all, there is the biblical defining of spiritual gifts. I said something a moment ago, and I said I would explain it later. I said in the very beginning that history cannot be the first and the final basis for coming to a proper conclusion. And I say that because we do not develop or build our theology on history or experiences. It is helpful. It is suggestive. It lets us see things. It makes us think. It helps us to search. It helps us to evaluate things. But the bottom line is we do not build theology on history. You build theology upon what God says in His Word. Now, the Bible is the first and the final authority for what we should believe. The teachings of the Bible form the basis of what we believe is right, and the teachings of the Bible form the basis for what we believe is wrong. You listen to me. If the Bible teaches it, you ought to believe it. If the Bible teaches it, you should accept it. Let me back up. If the Bible teaches it, you better believe it. And if the Bible teaches it, you better accept it. And if the Bible teaches it, you better embrace it. 
And if the Bible teaches something that is contrary to what we believe, then we need to change what we believe. It matters not how we learn it. It matters not how long we believed it. It matters not how we were taught it, who taught it, where we were taught it. If the Bible teaches otherwise, we should change the way we believe. What we've got to do is let the Word of God, the Bible, determine what we believe. And I'll say this vice versa. If there's something in the Bible that is taught we're not believing it, we better start believing it. For the Bible is our first and final authority. It determines our theology. History gives support to it, but the Bible itself is where we develop our theology. I think about our own day and time. Much of what is happening in our day, and all you got to listen, much of what is happening in our day is experience-driven and historically founded rather than based on the teachings of the Word of God. Can I say that again? I may have said, but I think it's a very important statement to remember. Much of what happens in our day is experience-driven and historically founded rather than based on the teachings of the Word of God. Someone says, but Brother Ken, I know what happened to me. It was so real. I know what I experienced. It had to be real. Or someone says, but Brother Trivet, it happened then or it happened there. I saw it happen. I cannot deny what I saw. Again, I repeat with great emphasis. You do not build theology upon what you experience. Your experience is the outflow of your theology. If your experience is not backed up by theology, then junk your experience. Because your beliefs is based upon what God said in His Word, period. Can I say it again? Your theology is not based upon what happened. It's not based on history. It's not based on experience. It is based upon what God says in His Word, period. No buts and ifs, no gray area, black and white, period. And so the first thing, the whole, the bottom line in, uh, line in understanding spiritual gifts is what does the Bible say? Now we put the key of historical and evaluate it throughout history, but really when it all boils down, the whole thing, it boils down to one thing, what does the Bible say? Now that raises another issue. The interpretation of the Bible. Someone says, but Brother Ken, that's the way you see it. I don't see it that way. Or another says, that's the way you look at it. Or I might say, that's the way they interpret the Scripture. I don't interpret that way. Obviously, there are differences about spiritual gifts. Some will interpret it one way, some will interpret it the other way. How do we determine who is right? Now, there's a simple answer to it. The answer is very simple. It all boils down to who's properly interpreting the Bible. Did you hear me? It all boils down to who is properly interpreting the Bible. You see, a person can make the Bible teach just about anything they want to. Ku Klux Klan that come up, an ungodly outfit, and it came up in this state many years ago, based it all on the Bible. Nazism in some ways was based on, by Hitler even was driven, but some of the things he did by what he said was in the Bible. You can take the Bible and make it uh, teach just about anything you want to, but the issue is not making the Bible teach something. The issue is letting the Bible teach itself. It's not a matter of believing something and then going to the Bible and finding something in the Bible to back up what you believe. It's a simple matter of letting the Bible say what it means and you taking it for what it means. 
Now let me give you a couple of rules to help you determine what the Bible means and help you to properly interpret the Bible. Can I do that tonight? Are you in a hurry to get home? I'm sorry. Let me go on. Now you want to understand spiritual gifts, then you got to see what the Bible says. Again, who's right? Well, let me give you two laws of biblical interpretation to help you know how to, to know what is right. First of all, there must be a contextual study of the Scripture. There must be a contextual or a study of the Scripture in its context. You remember this. An important rule of Bible study is to interpret a passage within its context. And when I mean interpret it in, in within its context, you interpret a statement of the Bible in light of the verses that surround that statement. You do not interpret the Bible on a single statement. You interpret a statement around within its context. For example, go back to chapter 11, verse 34. Look at that statement there. We looked at this. But notice this statement. If any man hunger, let him eat at home. Now, if you just took that statement at face value, just took, well, not face value, but just took that statement just as it is. If any man hunger, let him eat at home. If you just divorce that from anything else around it, then what you basically come up with the ideal is that churches couldn't have a fellowship hall. Or you'd come up with the ideal or the teaching or the doctrine is that you should never eat at church. If you're hungry, you might even read this, and some of you may jump on this and believe this. Uh, you may even interpret it. If you get hungry, go home and eat. Some of you may be heading home in a minute or whatever. But if you just took that statement... Divorced it from its context, you would get the opinion or build a doctrine that you could not eat at church. But that's not what Paul was saying. You remember when we went through that passage there and we considered it, it was in light of the Lord's Supper. And the church of Corinth, and we saw how they, what they would do, the believers would come together. It's all in chapter 11. They would come together and they would pool their food together for a time of fellowship. And the whole purpose, they called it a love feast, the agape, and they would do that to promote harmony and build up the body of Christ and cause one another to love one another and whatever like that. But in the church of Corinth, there were some that were coming a little early because they didn't want to sit with others. And when they got there, instead of pooling their food together so that everybody had something, this one selfish little group was sitting together all by themselves, even getting there early, wouldn't let anybody else participate in it, and they were refusing to share their food with the less fortunate. That's in chapter 11, verse 21. And Paul says, no, this is not for profit. He said, this bill has been to promote fellowship, but you're causing division. Chapter 11, verse 18. And Paul, in effect, was saying, if all you're doing is coming together to eat a meal, you can do that at home. The whole purpose of the love feast was to promote fellowship, not division. And if all you do is eating, if you're hungry, eat at home. Now you would never understand that if you did not interpret that statement in verse 34 in light of its context. Now you see what I'm talking about? It is only when you study a statement in the Bible in light of its context that you can properly understand what is meant. Now let me give you another example more relevant to our study. Look in 1 Corinthians 14, 34. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. The scripture said in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. Now what if we just stop there? What if we just took that one statement, pulled it out, and said this is the Bible, and it is the Bible. 
But we pulled it out and we said, now this is our theory. This is what we believe. Women keep silent in the church for it's not permitted for you to speak. That's what the Bible said. So don't you even, even squeak. In fact, you take the word silence there, it is a very strong word. It means absolute silence. Now, if you took that statement just by itself, it would, if you just pulled it out as it is and just interpreted it by, the, by that one statement in itself, then it would be telling us that a woman couldn't say anything at church. Absolute silence. That would mean she couldn't even teach at church. She couldn't give a testimony. She couldn't even get up and sing. If that's the way you interpreted that statement, pulling it out. You couldn't do it. Now, some of you men wish that was a 24-hour-a-day passage of Scripture. But what I'm saying is this. There is no way you can interpret or clearly understand what he meant without interpreting that statement in light of its context. Women, as we've already saw, had a certain place. And God had set up a certain order of authority. That's why he mentions in the very next verse about a woman asking husband at home. But when you interpret that statement in light of its context, you get something you never hear. What is the context of that statement? He's talking about the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. He's not rolling along talking about one subject and then all of a sudden just he's got a little pee, pet peeve and he just kind of jumps on it. It's kind of like uh, some of the preachers I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. They were hard on smoking. And I don't care what they're preaching on, they'd get off on it. They'd be preaching on Jesus died on the cross. And there he was hanging, shedding his blood. And he didn't have a cigarette in his mouth either. <laughs> it's kind of like whatever they were doing, they had to throw something in. And Paul's not flowing around dealing with prophecy and tongues. And all of a sudden, just he had this thing about women. All of a sudden, he's, I just want you to know, women keep silent. No, 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 no. It's all a part of what he's talking about. And when you interpret that in light of its context, in light of the order of authority, what Paul is seeing is we will understand more is that the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues was never given to a woman to start with. That God never gave a woman the gift of tongues. That was a gift that had a specific role. And if she had that gift, it put her out of balance as far as her role as God gave it. And her role of authority. What I'm saying is this. Whenever you study the Bible, you've got to study it contextually. You've got to study it in light of its context. Are you still with me? Something else you've got to do when you study the Bible. Not only must there be a contextual study of the Scripture, there must be a comparative study of the Scripture. Not only must you study the Scripture in light of its context, but you, almost, you, you also have to study the Scripture comparing it Scripture to Scripture. That is what is taught in one place. You must compare it to what is taught in another place. 1 Corinthians 2.13, we saw that when we went through 1 Corinthians, comparing spiritual with spiritual. We talked about that which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual, that if there is one truth taught here, that it must be studied in comparison with the other thing. And what he's talking about, what it really means is that if you interpret one verse one way and it's not backed up by another verse or not backed up, the same truth is not backed up in some other verse, then you've misinterpreted it. 
Because, listen to me, the Bible will never teach one thing in one place and teach another thing in another place. Because anything that's taught in the Bible somewhere, and as you compare the Word of God and study, it will reinforce itself. It will not create contradictions. And so the Bible's not going to teach you one thing and teach you something else. So when you study the Bible, you've got to compare it in light. So you take a statement here, study it in its context, and then take the passage there and compare it with the rest of the Bible. And when you compare it with the rest of the teachings of the Word of God, then you're able to properly understand what is going on and understand what is right and what is wrong. So key number two is a biblical defining of the gifts. Now let me give the third one and I'll try to hurry. My, my sin is lying and I know that and so I'll do what I can. Amen. Look at the third thing and then I'll move on. Are you still with me now? Say amen. There, the key number one is the historical description of the gifts. Key number two is the biblical defining of the gifts. And key number three is the critical division of, the spir of spiritual gifts. There's a third key to understanding spiritual gifts, and that is properly classifying and dividing the gifts into their role and purpose. At the very beginning, we read of three places in the Bible that you had a list of spiritual gifts. I want us to go through them very, very quickly, but I want us to look at them. If you count them all up, there's about 19 of them there. But I just want to hit them because I know it's late and whatever there. And I know you're anxious to get home. And I, I sometimes said I don't have time. I have time. It's you that don't have time. But anyway, let me, let me, I just want to quickly look at them. I'm going to look, look at these, all these gifts. And I believe as you look at the scripture, you can actually put them in classes. And I believe there are phrases there that indicate this is a specific type of gift. And there are three classes that you can put all the gifts in. Three classes. You can take all 19 of them that are listed here. If there's more, whatever there, less, whatever. I believe you can take all the gifts and I believe you can put them in three different classes. Here's class number one. I call it speaking gifts. Speaking gifts are gifts that have to do with the matter of communication or speaking. The giving of God's word. As I find, as I study the scriptures, I find there are eight particular of these that would be placed in the speaking gifts. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 11. Turn there quickly. Ephesians chapter 4, notice verse 11. The Bible said that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, verse 8 indicates that these are spiritual gifts been given to God. Do you realize that a pastor is a gift of God to a church? An evangelist is a gift of God to a church? He talks about these gifts being given to them. And I call them speaking gifts because all of these have to do with communication. They have to do with speaking, declaring the truth of the Word of God. Look at them quickly. First of all, he mentions that God gave apostles. The word apostles literally means a sent one, one sent with authority. Now, this is where we go again to compare the Scripture to try to find out who is an apostle, what is an apostle, what is meant by apostle, and whatever. You'll find in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, jot those references down, that when the Bible talks about apostles, it is talking about a very unique class of people. When the Bible talks about an apostle, it's talking about a very unique class. For in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, you find the qualifications for apostles. And the qualifications for apostle is this, is number one, they had to have been a disciple. They had to have been a disciple from the time of John's baptism. And number two, in order to be apostle, they had to have been an eyewitness of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Now, when you look at those qualifications in Acts chapter 1, it tells us immediately that this is a limited group of gifted men. 
They would not be any apostles in our day. If they were, they'd be at least 2,000 years old. The apostles that we know of and the qualifications that are given to us in the Word of God for an apostle would indicate, as we know, that the disciples became apostles. The 12 disciples that we know, minus Judas and Matthias that took Judas' place, were the apostles. He mentioned, second of all, the prophets. And the word prophet is translated from the word that means to speak forth. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, we often think of a prophet as someone who predicts the future. No, a prophet was someone that spoke forth. He spoke forth the word of God. These were men to whom God revealed his word, and these were men that declared the word of God. Now, let me say this. In our day and time, we do not need prophets. And there's a reason we don't need prophets. Because we have the word of God. You got a Bible in your hand? You know what that is? You think about the early church, even churches of Corinth. Do you realize they didn't have a Lanham's Bible bookstore? They didn't have a Lifeway Christian store. I don't know, I'd die if Lifeway went out of business. And they didn't have any of those. They didn't have a Bible. And so the way they received God's Word was through gifted men. Men that immediately received the Word of God and then gave that Word to the church of Jesus Christ. But we do not need prophets because 2 Peter 1, 9, 19 tells us that we have a more sure word, a prophet, prophecy. But Ephesians 2, 20, jot this reference down. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time. But I say that we don't need them and we don't have them. It's because Ephesians 2, 20 identifies apostles and prophets as existing as a foundational role in the church. Ephesians 2.20 says, talking about the church, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. God had apostles in the early days of the church, men that had been a disciple from the time of John, men that had literally seen Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And they were apostles, men that God gifted, that he spoke through, that gave the word of God. And Ephesians 2.20 said that the church is built, the foundation of the church is built upon apostles and prophets. In other words, it indicates and in saying is that the very foundation was laid on men that had unusual and very unique gifts. The very beginning, they were the ones that started off. That's how we got the word of God. So those foundation laid, you no longer needed foundational gifts. The next group that is listed is evangelists. And this is a gift of the day. It involves the matter of sharing the good news. It talks about somebody traveling from place to place, sharing the good news. Our missionaries would fall in this area. The final group in Ephesians 4 is a pastor and teachers. And these are two gifts combined, pastors and teachers. The word pastor means a shepherd. And the word uh, teacher there talks about the teaching of the word of God. A pastor is someone that has been given the gift of pastor and given the gift of being able to teach the word of God in order to teach the saints of God. Look in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 8. That's a speaking gift. Obviously, if I couldn't speak, I wouldn't be teaching. It's a speaking gift. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 8. I'm trying to hurry. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 8. We have another speaking gift. There are two of them. We looked at those. I just comment on them, pass them. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. They're speaking gifts. It is a word of wisdom. It is a word of knowledge. Wisdom is that God-given ability to have deep insight in the word of God. And the gift of knowledge is that God-given ability to be able to communicate that to others. Look in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10. There's another gift there that I believe falls in this category of 
speaking gifts to another discerning of spirits. This is a God-given ability to be able to discern between what was real and what was right. Even 1 John talked about, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone in the world. God gifted certain people in the early church to be able to discern what is right and wrong. They didn't have a Bible. They could not judge or measure someone by the Bible. So anybody could have come in and said, I have a word from God. And, and, and they, if it had not certain gifts, there was no way anybody could have known whether it was of God or not. And so God gifted some with the uh, gift of discernment of spirits to know whether or not it was right or real. And they had the ability to be able to share that and communicate that and let people know. It's speaking gifts. Look at the second category. Serving gifts. I believe not only do you have a class of gifts that are speaking gifts that involve communication in one way or the other, but they're also serving gifts. Look in Romans 12. Romans 12 in verse 6. We read it a moment ago, but look at it. Romans 12, verse 6. The Bible said in Romans 12, verse 6, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Now notice this next word, or ministry. Let us wait on our ministry. You see that word ministry? It's the same word deacon. And in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy there, it is a word that speaks of a servant or service. And he's talking now about gifts in Romans 12, but he tells us now in verse 7 there, or ministry, service, acts of service or ministry, and he begins to give certain gifts. What he's doing is saying, now there are gifts that involve ministry. There are certain gifts that he says that are word gifts where you communicate, but there are some gifts now that fall into a category. This is how people serve. This is how people minister. Look at the list. I give them to you as quickly as possible. Verse 7, look at this. I like this one. We have the gift of giving. He said, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. Now, I hate to tell some folks that belong to the body of Christ that your ability to make money is just so you can have four boats, 12 houses, two cars, four wives, and all, all the things that goes with it. Now, I want you to understand something. Do you realize that there are some people that God divinely enables to be able to make money? And He divinely equips them to make money so they can give more money to the work of God. If you are a believer and you are blessed with wealth, now I want you to understand something. One, it may be that the reason God blessed you with, with, with wealth was so you'd be able to put more money into the work of God than the average person could. God didn't give you that money to set and just draw interest. He gave you that money to use it in the work of God. That, don't, let me get off of giving. I'll be there all night long. <laughs> I will kill the service if I get on giving. Verse 8, he talks about the gift of ruling. He that ruleth with diligence. And that word ruling there is basically the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 when he talks about governments. It is a word that was used to speak of a pilot guiding a ship through a storm. And what he's talking about is that there are those who have been gifted of God 
with leadership skills. Those that God gives good, sound, biblical, just a good ability to lead the church of God. He gives some people to be able to give to the church of God. He gives some people to be able to be leaders in the church of God. Verse 8, you have the gift of show 